In this week's episode, I have the opportunity to sit down with Chef Brandon Allen, culinary cannabis expert and creator of the course, Cooking with Cannabis over at the Tricome Institute. Welcome to Bite Me, the show about edibles, where I help you take control of your high life. I'm your host and certified Gangier Marge, and I love helping cooks make safe and effective edibles at home. I'm so glad you're here, and thank you for joining me today. This conversation with Chef Brandon Allen was epic. It spanned two and a half hours. So to be mindful of your time, I've divided this episode up into two parts. Part one that you're listening to now covers common cannabis edibles myths, advice on perfecting your decarb, and tricks to maximize your infusions. Part two covers hosting cannabis-infused dinners and details of us cooking with cannabis course at the Tricome Institute. I know you'll learn something new. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Chef Brandon Allen. All right. Hello, everyone. I am joined today by Chef Brandon Allen. I'm super excited to have you here today. And let's just get right into it. Why don't you take a second? (laughs) Yeah. And just introduce yourself and in particular, talk a bit about your cannabis history. My cannabis history. Well, I'm Chef Brandon Allen. And I am a partner with Tricome Institute. We're a cannabis education company. And we do a bunch of different types of online learning, including the Cooking with Cannabis course that we just came out with in partnership with the American Culinary Federation. So considering you know the name of your podcast, I'm going to guess we're going to be spending <laughs> more time talking about uh, Cooking with Cannabis versus you know dispensary training or cannabis connoisseurs right. and whatnot. Uh, So my history with cannabis all started back when I was 14 and uh, got high smoking out of a foil bowl in the baseball field dugout in Sullivan County, Pennsylvania, (laughs) I think in 1998 or 99. Uh, And since then, um, for the majority of that time period that's, you know, gone by since was just just for fun. Uh, I looked at it as a, a recreational way to, you know, feel good. <laughs> um, right. When when I, I met my now wife uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, she signed up with a traveling nursing agency and we started bouncing around the country. And I was fresh out of culinary school. I went late in life and uh, we ended up in Colorado first. So I was basically reintroduced to cannabis from a legal perspective, which is really cool. So I was using regularly. And then I moved to Texas and don't get caught with drugs in Texas, just so you know. Um, <laughs> and then we moved to LA and LA is when I, during that time period, a few months before is when I was really started like focusing on my health and some weight loss and, you know, just making sure that when I'm 40, 50 years old, I'm not in bad shape and started using cannabis regularly. And that's when it was essentially reintroduced to me from more of a medicinal perspective, actually not reintroduced. It was introduced from a medicinal perspective because I never really looked at it like that before. And I had some pretty profound uh, immediate benefits once I was consuming regularly, which I really enjoyed. And I thought, Hey, you know, there's an opportunity here in this brand new industry. I'm a chef. Uh, I have some pretty bad back issues. So I went to school not to work in kitchens. And I looked at the cannabis industry as a way that I could take, uh, you know, some of my passions, merge them together and create something out of it. And that's pretty much what I did. I started doing little Instagram videos on cooking with cannabis and cannabis education and ended up being uh, tagged in a post for the High Times Top Cannabis Chef competition, which I won and became the first High Times Top Cannabis Chef. And then did a bunch of stuff in California. We were in San Diego for a while after LA. 
and essentially just created a name for myself out of thin air, which was just amazing. I'm so grateful that that actually happened. Um, and I ended up running into Max Montrose. Again, I was a student of theirs when I first got into cannabis uh, back in when we were living in LA. And about a year and a half later, I reconnected with him and he said, hey, we're doing some cool stuff over here. You're doing some cool stuff over there. Why don't we join forces? So I ended up being a consultant with them for a while and then a partner. So I moved to LA, started making edibles and turned it into a career. That's amazing. That's like the dream yeah. of many, many people out there for sure. Especially any of those 14 year olds out there, that are smoking, not that they're listening to this show, but because I think I was about <laughs> the same age when I started as well, give or take. And, you know, it's sort of been part of my life too throughout the years. But so have you always had an interest in cooking then? Because it sounds like it came very I've, naturally to you. I've been scrambling eggs since I was three years old. I remember that vividly, but I never looked at food as anything other than it was just food. I enjoyed it. My mom cooked five, six nights a week and I enjoyed going out to eat. But I think as a kid, it was more going out to eat because it wasn't home cooking. It was just something different. Mm -hmm. um, but it was never anything that was on my radar that I looked at professionally. And what actually got me really interested in food is, uh, first of all, if anyone looks me up on Instagram, you'll see that I'm a diehard carnivore. I just eat a ton of meat <laughs> and eggs. That's like my two things. Um, but I'm actually, an, uh, I call it a recovering vegan. Uh, and so when I went vegan, when I was probably 23, I want to say 22, 23, um, I, at that time in Northeastern Pennsylvania, there, there wasn't a whole foods around the corner. We had mm -hmm. Wegmans, which was the closest thing to a nicer grocery store that had a natural food selection, which was the whole section was probably the size of my 1600 square foot, uh, apartment here. It was very small and it was so expensive to find prepared foods. So I basically was, I was given the decision of, I can spend triple on my grocery bill or I can learn <laughs> how to cook. And it, it, I, that's what I did. And, you know, at this point, there was plenty of YouTube videos out there, but nowhere near what there is right now. Um, and I just started winging it. I would come up with these ideas or I would think of recipes I grew up eating, like stuffed peppers. And then I would think, well, what can I do to make that vegan? Okay. I'd mess around with that and I would totally mess it up. And then I would think, well, what can I do to make it better? And I would just, you know, repeat until I got the hang of these different things. And that's really what piqued my interest in looking at food as something that could potentially be a career. And um, my stepfather ended up taking over a little pizza sandwich shop in State College, Pennsylvania, and asked me to come out and create a vegan menu for uh, the, the shop because there wasn't anything like that in the little tiny speck in the center of Pennsylvania called State College. So that's what I ended up doing and uh, loved it. And what I, what I found is that I eventually fell in love with food more than I was in love with the idea of being vegan. And believe me, right. all vegans love <laughs> being vegan. Yes, <laughs> I yeah. know. Listen, I, you, you might get triggered by that, but I'm an ex-vegan. What I can always right. say is that anytime you meet someone that used to do what you do, but they don't anymore, you should always talk to that person with an open mind. Not necessarily right. try and, you know, change your mind, but hear them out. Hear, hear what created that shift, you know? Um, so I decided to go to culinary school 
And that was it. I, I went to school to not work in a kitchen. And that was from day one. It was just to learn about food and then find a way to incorporate my passion for culinary and, and cooking into something else. And fortunately, that something else happened to have a lot of overlap, uh, considering the nature <laughs> of, you know, there are a couple of ways to consume cannabis. And one of the most common uh, outside of smoking would be ingesting it. And it's just a matter of what you're ingesting and how delicious it is. So you're a you're recovering vegan who learned to cook <laughs> a lot through vegan cuisine, which is very interesting. My daughter actually happened, one of my daughters owns a vegan restaurant. So I'm pretty familiar with okay. sort of the vegan philosophy and the, the food there is fantastic. Um, and it certainly presents challenges when you have to cook vegan sometimes. Mm. So be a great way to learn, of course. But were you already cooking with weed before you decided to go to culinary school? Like you said, you went to culinary so that you could avoid no. working in kitchens. And I know kitchens yeah. are tough. I've worked in some. So yeah, were you already doing no, that? No, not at all. Honestly, I had never even had an edible until after culinary school. Oh, really? Okay. I remember I, I made butter once for a friend but I had no idea what I was doing. He just told me what to do. I made it for him and handed it to him. And he was, you know, a, a daily smoker. This is in Pittsburgh. And he said he ate some of the butter and just got totally wrecked, which is like, <laughs> yeah, it's, this, it's like almost everyone's story. No, my, my right. first edible ever was out of Denver. It was a root beer soda mm -hmm. and you know, the bud tender. <clears throat> oh boy said drink half and in 30 minutes if you don't feel anything drink the other half well i listened to him and i was so high i was seeing jesus i was gone i i was i think i started i drank the first half around 6 p.m one night the next morning at 11 30 when i woke up i was still high wow and How's at the time wow. yeah yeah i was doing at that time because we were traveling i was doing product uh presentation and recipes and stuff through Whole Foods and natural grocery stores for a couple different brands. And I packed up and I got into the car and I went to head to the dispensary. I'm not the dispensary. <laughs> yes. I went to head to the, the, the Whole Foods and I got out of our community and I just turned right around. I'm like, there's no way that I should be driving right now. That's how high I still felt. Uh, wow. So yeah, that, that and, and, and from there, what I realized is that it doesn't take 30 minutes to kick in. It's 40, it, the lower end, 45 to an hour, upwards of two hours. And for a first time edible consumer, for anyone who is curious or is, is maybe consumed years ago and hasn't, five milligrams max in a 24 hour period. I don't care if you don't feel a damn thing. An hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, six hours after you eat that edible, do not take any more within a 24 hour period. Okay. After that increase by two and a half milligrams, maybe five. Uh, but you know, that the edible world is one that so many people just get totally zonked on. Um, and so that's something that I'm like, Adam. And, and the, the funny thing is I was told this by a dispensary employee, Right. Like, it's not like the science of edibles changed since then. He just didn't <laughs> yeah. know what the hell he was talking about. Like, right. I just can't imagine how many people, especially tourists, they had their nights ruined. Now, there's plenty of people that had a blast, I assure you. But yeah. there's, there's a lot that, you know, um, regardless of how much you smoke, an edible is a completely different type of scenario. So, 
yes. uh, your tolerance yes. means nothing. Absolutely. I wish more people talked about that because I hear that yeah. like people just like, oh, I'm a heavy smoker. I should be able to handle, you know, the strongest edibles you've got, but then they're laid out by five milligrams. You know, I see that I've seen that yeah. happen so many times yep. and yeah. And, and that, and the whole five milligrams starting out low and then waiting a long time is always a good idea too. Cause that's where you always hear these, like these edibles ain't shit. And then next thing you know, <laughs> somebody's like way too high. So, <laughs> which yeah. sounds like that happened. Well, maybe not necessarily to you. Do you remember how strong the drink was that the bud tender recommended? It was only, it was only 10 milligrams total. So I, I took five and then yeah. I ended up drinking the other five. So, okay. So half or it, 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 zero minutes, I, I drink. 30 minutes in, I'm not feeling anything, so I drink the rest. 30 minutes after that, the first dose kicked in. That first five right. milligram kicked in. I felt phenomenal. 30 minutes after that, it all changed. And I remember <laughs> I was watching movies with with my 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 with Megan. So she was girlfriend at the time, wife now. And I'm sitting on the sofa and I, I remember just being like all spread out like this, like arms wide, legs wide, just sunk back in. And I remember saying to her, babe, I am so freaking high right now. Please don't, <laughs> please don't like mess with me. Just let me. And she started tickling me. Oh no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's been like two times in my entire life that my wife has tickled me. That was one of them. Right. And it got my heart rate going up and I just got like space cadet. I mean, I was, I was gone. I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound, <laughs> and I've, I've done that to myself before too. And it's, it's not very pleasant. So yeah. And, and there may be some people right now that are thinking, Oh, this guy's a wuss, you know, five milligrams. Come on. Like, listen to each their own. If you're, yeah. if you're trying to be a badass cause you can take 50 or a hundred good for you. Guess what? <laughs> I'm a cheaper date. Right. That's right. And the, the, the tolerance varies so widely across the board that, you know, it's all just, luck, I guess you, you ended up lucky that five milligrams is your thing. So, yeah. Now yeah, do you and, have a, even years later, years later, five, 10 milligrams was my sweet spot. I would, right. well, I would mic microdose like in the mornings on my days off, I'd take two and a half to five, just get this like easy little chill buzz going. But mm -hmm. my daily routine, uh, up until a couple of years ago was 10 to, to 15 milligrams was perfect. And what I would do is I would smoke and take the uh, edible at the same time. So my inhalation high was immediate. And then as that was fading out, the edible high would kick in. And that little sweet spot where they, they meet, ooh, that's like yeah. the best. <laughs> um, and, and, that, and then once that came down, I would smoke again. And by smoke, I mean just a couple hits. Like my, right. my tolerance to cannabis for, for the most part, even when I was a, a daily, if not multiple times a day consumer was always very, very low. Give me a hit or two. Give me a small dose edible. I'm set. I've never done a dab in my life because I have a feeling that I would enter a different dimension. Uh, <laughs> you and, sound and very I, much I like me, back. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do yep. sound so very much it, like It's me. just everyone's got to have their own little personal journey. And what's interesting with the edible side of things, we're going to tangent here for a minute, is that our digestive enzymes in our stomach that varies in the sense of the amount that's bioavailable. So some mm -hmm. people have, will destroy more and others won't. And then from there, there are these enzymes in your liver that, meta <clears throat> excuse me, that metabolize drugs. And for many drugs, the reason that you have to swallow a pill 
versus have it injected or, you know, um, you know, do an aerosol through your nose or whatever the case may be is because it has to be metabolized for it to be activated, so to speak. And THC is very similar in that regard. Well, some people have a gene variant that minimizes or increases or totally changes, let's just say that, how THC is metabolized. So there are some people that can take two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred, a thousand milligrams of THC and not feel anything or only feel a little bit for like 20 or 30 minutes. And it just has to do with genetics. So right. if you're one of those folks that cannot get high off an edible, that's fine. Just smoke a joint and eat something tasty at the same time. You know, right. you're, yeah. you're good to get. <laughs> you don't you don't exactly get that layering in like you're talking about with because I like to do that mm. too. Smoke a little bit before while the edible's kicking in. That's pretty nice. But you know, the everyone's well, just, biology is different. So yeah. Yeah, and it would be so damn expensive to <laughs> have to eat that many milligrams of THC. Now, oh yeah, it's not worth it at that point. Pulp. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just leave it to smoking. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. If you got to eat a thousand milligrams, you're probably better off, like you said, smoking or doing something else. Now it's yep. interesting. You were mentioning about the layering and like how our biology is different, which is all very factual. But one of the things you do like to do is think about cannabis in a different way. And you talk a lot about busting different myths that are ridiculously prevalent uh, these days. Do you want to talk about some of those? I think the first place I had here to start with was the indica or sativa edible high, which yes, I yes. like. To, well, this will this yeah. will lead right into the to the next one or two possibly that that you may have on your list there. So everyone knows of indica and sativa, and what we know about that just at a thirty thousand foot level is that you know indica means in the couch or a sedative high and sativa is a stimulating or energizing high. Now, back in the day when these original varieties were introduced to the U.S. market during this, well, it's still prohibition, but during the the heart of prohibition, um, that may have been the case in the sense that anything that was in the Indica category was sedative anything in sativa was stimulating well since then there has been so much hybridization of these flowers that the terpene profiles and the cannabinoid profiles have changed drastically um and and not in the just in the sense of the potential effects but it's how they were grown i mean there's nothing natural about 30 some percent thc that didn't happen in nature you know, and the, these terpene yields are, are very different because of the controlled environments of which they're cultivated in. So everything has changed. So even though everything has changed, the idea of sativa has not. So think of cannabis on a spectrum still from sedative to stimulating, but get rid of the name sativa because they don't matter. Everything is a domesticated hybrid. And then even if someone were to take, you know, as what some people refer to as a land race, which could also be up for debate. Um, if someone were to take some OG strain from the Kush mountain range, okay, um, it doesn't mean that it necessarily will be completely sedative, even if it was the original. So anyway, uh, 
power of suggestion and placebo and, and what you're told about something play a major role in how things affect you. But there's so many other variables in the sense of the experience that someone can have from smoking flour, um, just like we were talking about with gene variants and edibles. Those same type of things happen with inhalation, uh, your set and setting, your endocannabinoid system health, your expectation, like all these things play a major role. So indica and sativa, just as a whole, from an inhalation perspective, don't mean what they used to. Um, and you could, I assure you, get plenty of flowers in the market right now that are labeled as indica and actually have a stimulating experience and vice versa. Okay. So there's that. Now, from an edible perspective, even further, why indica and sativa don't matter is because of consumption determines function. What you're consuming, how you're consuming it, what it's being consumed with, how much you're consuming, um, all and the dose all have to do with the experience that someone's going to have. Now, when we look at terpenes, terpenes are the driving force in the experience the effects that someone receives from cannabis, marijuana, even, even with hemp, actually, when you're smoking it. So there's certain terpene profiles that actually do have a sedative nature to them. And then there's others that are much more stimulating. Okay. And what it has to do with is when you are lighting that flower on fire or vaporizing it or dabbing it, whatever it may be, mainly in the, in the, in the smoking department, um, because you're getting kind of more of the natural terpene profile, not added back in at levels that may be questionable of what those effects actually could be. But when you're when you're inhaling them, you're you're lighting on them them on fire, or you're vaporizing them into the bowl or through the joint. You're creating heat. They're evaporating, and you're immediately inhaling them, and they're going into your lungs. Okay, there is some burn off. There are some terpenes that don't even make it. Uh, same thing with cannabinoids, but you're immediately inhaling. Okay, now these terpenes are incredibly volatile. They degrade, oxidize, and evaporate even at cool temperatures, let alone room temperature, let alone with a 400 to 700 degree uh, heating environment, depending if you're vaping or lighting things on fire. Or actually, fire would go up even higher, I believe, up to like 900. I think a match lit is somewhere between like six and 900 degrees. Um, so when you are when you're lighting these things on the fire, they change drastically, but with inhalation, they get in right away. Now, in the world of decarboxylation, which is required for any cannabis product and for it to make you feel high, the THC changes shape, which is what allows it to be effective. Well, the terpenes are so much more volatile than cannabinoids. So when they're exposed to decarboxylation temperatures, they change. They oxidize, they evaporate off, even at low 200 degree, which, you know, you most decarb recommendations that you'll see across the border between two and 300 degrees minus 270 based off of research from the University of Mississippi. Um, and that's for 30 minutes and we can chat about decarb later if you like. But so what happens is when you're decarbing flour or even a concentrate, you'll notice that what it smelled like before is no longer. You could have the most pungent, robust, absolutely phenomenal flower. Even if you sous vide it at 180 or 200 degrees, once you're done that process and you open it up, it does not smell the same. Well, it's because those terpenes have evaporated out. Okay. So when you are evaporating those terpenes through decarb, they're not going immediately into your lungs with the THC. They're gone. They're out into the abyss. Okay. 
So you're drastically reducing the amount of terpene that's even in the edible right, right from the get-go. Then you make an infusion. There's another 200 some degree for another 30 or 40 or 60 minutes, depending on what you're following. That's further uh, degrading it. And then from there, you start eating. And when you start eating an edible, even your saliva has digestive enzymes in it, okay? Mm -hmm. It goes through your esophagus, it hits your stomach. And your stomach can just eat anything. <laughs> the things that have passed through the human stomach is fascinating. It's so acidic. And it digests and breaks down these like proteins, which are a lot more stable than, uh, you know, your, your terpenes. So uh, there's a study that was done on uh, hop compounds, which terpenes is primarily what they're looking at. And what they found is that when a terpene is introduced to the stomach acid, it can turn into other terpenes or different derivatives of the original terpene. So let's say linalool all of a sudden is five different things in your stomach. Then you have the bioavailability of those terpenes that reduces drastically. Okay. Um, you know, a THC bioavailability is between 10 and 20%. Now, again, terpenes are even more volatile. So I don't know exactly what it is, but it's very low. It's lower than, than uh, a more stable cannabinoid like THC. So then what happens is these terpenes, the ones that are left over, they hit your liver and then your liver does something similar to what your um, stomach does. It just like metabolizes delta-9 THC into 11-hydroxy THC, it totally changes these terpenes uh, again. So going back to consumption determines function. What we're consuming is changed drastically due to decarboxylation in the infusion. Then once it is consumed, your stomach and your liver wreak havoc on these super volatile compounds. So at the end of the day, because of all the changes that happen to these terpenes that are very different than inhalation, by the time you may have a systemic, uh, uh, an amount of a terpene that becomes systemic, so it's through your blood, it has the ability to interact with receptors, do you have enough of a terpene for it to actually create any type of physiological effect. Now, if you do, after all of this, <laughs> if you do, what is that effect? Because the shape and everything of the terpene that you inhaled through with your joint or your vape pen, and the way it was metabolized through your lungs, which has very similar enzymes as your liver does, but is that the same terpene? So if you smoke a variety that's high in myrcene, beta-caryophylline, linalool, and some other sedative terpenes, and it puts you in the couch type thing, you're just chill. If you were to make an edible out of that strain and then eat it, it's a completely different animal. So it doesn't mean that you're going to have a sedative or stimulating experience. For the most part, think of an edible as it's strictly cannabinoid-driven. It, I'm not saying that terpenes can't provoke physiological effects or have medicinal benefits through digestion, but I'm saying that it's different and mm -hmm. what happens one way doesn't guarantee that it happens another. So um, there are so many people that will fight me to the death over this idea that there's an indica high or, or a sativa high when it comes to edibles. And uh, I think a lot of the reason that they may experience that consistently is just the fact that they believe in it so much or companies are smart to a point. <laughs> so when they're saying that 
their sedative calming edible high is that. And you look at and see that they have chamomile and other herbs that have been proven to be provoke sedative effects or melatonin in it. Well, what do you expect? Of course, it's going to be common. Or they save those indica edibles for when? At the end of the day. Right. When yep. you're tired, you've been working, you've been going, of course, you're looking to relax and go to sleep. So you're set and setting your expectation plus the placebo of indica on the label is putting you in the scenario where you're going to have a relaxing time. So that is the whole idea of indica and sativa when it comes to edibles. Don't think about terpenes from an effects perspective with an edible as you would through inhalation. And even inhalation varies because when you smoke flour, you're smoking much more. Uh, there's a lot of other compounds that are present versus a vape pen uh, and possibly even a dab depending on the quality. You know, so, um, and when you look at the cannabinoid potency and the terpene potency, because you're concentrating everything and people are generally with dabs are taking much more at once than they ever would through a bong or anything smokable. So you could even go to the extent to say that if you have a flower that you smoke, that's super, super sedative, that the concentrate or the vape pen could also be very different in the effects because of the delivery of those cannabinoids and the lack of delivery of other compounds that are present in natural flower. I'm not saying that natural flower is better. I'm just saying that it's different. So, mm -hmm. uh, to recap, terpenes are super volatile. <laughs> right. Yes. And so when people see the the packages of gummies or whatever that say sativa or indica on them, like people would ask for those all the time when I was at the dispensary. And sometimes I, you know, explain to them depending, depending on how receptive they were to a little education, but especially in the legal market where I am, a lot of those edibles are also made with distillate. So there's definitely no terpenes left in whatever know, concentrate they're using to infuse those, those gummies or cookies or whatever it is. So that adds to yeah, it as well. And even if they add terpene and I have nothing against distillate because especially for an edible high, like, like terpenes affect the flavor distillate for the most part is the most neutral thing that you can use for an infusion. It makes sense when people eat a gummy, they want to taste a gummy, not a bale of hay, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, so, or, or skunk or anything like that, you know? So the, the, Terpenes, even if they're added back in, they've now gone through steam distillation and been separated. They're the they're a different form of of limonene than what was in the raw flour or dried and cured flour that you lit up and evaporated and smoked immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it is a similar shape or structure, or derivative or whatever, the amount of it is also very different. You know, so um, terpenes are a great in the kitchen to influence the flavor and the aroma of food without cannabis. Think lemon zest, orange zest, right? There's terpenes in so many plants that we cook with basil and oregano and parsley and all these different things. But, you know, if terpenes uh, affected the high of an edible, that means that if you ate an edible and then ate a salad or anything plant driven, during that high that it should change immediately or change mm -hmm. within that digestive period, 30 to 45 minutes or whatever, but it doesn't happen. Believe me, as a cannabis chef, I've got blitzed <laughs> out of my mind plenty yeah. of times and I've eaten different things that I've never had a high suddenly take a shift. Now, if you're eating a 
double chocolate ganache cake of sorts and you get just a dumpster full of <laughs> sugar hitting your dome then yeah you're probably going to feel some changes you know uh but it has nothing to do with the terpenes being able to just change a high halfway through so why would it change the high or, or direct it in the beginning Right. Uh, yeah, a, that totally makes mind, sense. Mind over matter. And I'm happy to have that sort of reiterated here on this show for everybody who's listening. And I mean, one of the great reasons to make your own is that you don't have to worry about marketing bullshit and placebo and all that stuff when you're out there buying them uh, in a store. So yeah, I saw I saw a T-shirt recently on I think I was on the Tricoms Instagram scrolling through it and someone had a, like a hoodie or T-shirt and it said Indica and Sativa are lazy marketing. Yeah, <laughs> that and I, is. I thought that was you know, it's, it's a fun little jab, a little turn there, uh, as it's going in. Uh, but you know, it's true. It is, it's lazy marketing. Um, but you know what it's at the end of the day, it's, it's not, it's not hurting anyone. I don't think, you know, there is no difference. So if someone thinks that their edible is making them tired, then okay, well, if that's what they want and it helps them get there, Great. That's awesome. But, you know, in the future, this idea of indica and sativa, I think, will be a complete thing of the past from an inhalation perspective as well. And flower, even if a strain name is identified, they're going to be put into an effects category. And right. one of the one of the first flower companies and then the first first concentrate company that I could think of uh, out of California, the first would be Candescent. They were the first ones to put this five categories of effects, calm, cruise, create, connect, charge. And they had descriptions of what each of those categories meant. Well, what's interesting is fast forward five, six years later, they recently just announced that they're now including the strain name on their packaging. Okay. Because that's what the market wants. They want to know what strain they're smoking because they've all have been taught that strain names matter. Mm -hmm. And in some cases they do when we're talking about true jack Harrow, you know uh or true blue gene or durban poison whatever but you know just because it says durban poison doesn't mean it's durban poison even if it smells like durban poison it doesn't mean that the terpene profile is exactly what it should have been or right. other compounds that we're not totally familiar with yet um and then a company that started doing things based off of um, effects or experiences um dosis d-o-s-i-s-t they yeah. do these tiny little disposable vape cartridges. They're great. And they have like calm, passion, arouse, uh, relief, like these different things. And it, and it's, it's a good, I, I think it, it's at the end of the day, it's still, if something says calm or it says Indica, it's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's providing you with an, with an expectation. Some of those can be based off of science of the terpene profiles or, uh, the cannabinoid profiles, but there's so many other things that come into play when it, when you're talking about the experience you'll have with something like just you, just you as a whole and what you're doing and what you're looking forward to. You know, I, I, I want to do a study where I take the exact same strain and I give out a hundred pre-rolls and there's four groups and 25 people I'm told smoke this at night. It's going to put you to sleep. The other ones, I say, smoke this before you do your chores on Saturday morning. You're just going to kind of flow through it. The other ones, I say, smoke this before you go to a party. And the other one, smoke this before you go to your in-law's house. It'll help <laughs> reduce stress. <laughs> you right. know. And what's what's going to be funny is that 
the majority of each of those groups will probably say, yes, this is the experience I had. It helped me fall asleep. It helped me be energized. It helped me reduce my stress. And then there's going to be people within that were all over the board. And it'll just go to show that the exact same strain will have the, mm-hmm. whatever effect is, is, is expected. I think that there are definitely some strains out there that really do pull in one direction or the other. I really do. They're, they're, but I, I don't think it's every single strain has the ability to, to just have this completely unique uh, type, of, type of experience. And a lot of them are falling into this like dominant or middle ground category. So it's slightly sedative, it's slightly stimulating, or it's a, a, just a kind of easy breezy medium range balance of, of what's there, you know? So um, now I have also probably, so that I talk about placebo, there's also called nocebo, which is shall cause harm um, that a lot of people can talk about. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not familiar I, with that. I, I think the awareness of it itself also makes those aware of it, or maybe it's just me, um, extra skeptical of things. So it's like when I buy a product, cannabis related or not, and it has a description, because I know that the description is a huge form of power suggestion at times, I think that my mind shifts it almost in the opposite direction or or not opposite but not exactly where it's guiding me intentionally as this like weird um ha told you so it wasn't what you said it was (laughs) you know so i might just be messed up in the head here (laughs) you're just innately trying to prove them wrong i love it (laughs) now some of the Like you mentioned the placebo effect already but there's other myths that i think we've all heard time and time again, like if you eat mango, you're going to get more high. Uh, or if you eat peppercorns when you're too high, that'll help bring you down. Are these just some more cannabis sure. myths that have been perpetuated by, I don't know who they've been perpetuated by, but yeah, for sure. So, pretty regularly. Yep. So the myth of, or the claim about mango is that mango is high in myrcene. So if you eat mango before you smoke, that it will open up the blood-brain barrier. The mango, the myrcene in the mango will open up the blood-brain barrier and allow more THC. Therefore, you'll get higher. Okay. So, first of all, we let's look at mango. Okay. I, there was a study done on the top 20 commercialized mango varieties, and they looked at the chemical constituents, the carbohydrate count, et cetera, et cetera, and that also included the essential oil. And when you look at the essential oils, which includes terpenes, think think an essential oil is a recipe and terpenes are some of the individual ingredients. They they formulate it, but there's other aromatic compounds that are in there. So when you look across the board, there's hardly any myrcene in mango. Hmm. It's one of the lower, it's either mid or totally at the bottom or if at all on the list. But like carrying osamine, limonene, terpinene, they're all really high up there. Okay. So there's that it's myrcene is not very high in mango whatsoever. Okay. So that let's, we'll check that off. And then the, the claim that myrcene opens up the blood brain barrier to allow in more THC. Well, Ethan Russo talks about this in um, a shaping fire podcast. 
And he he explains, and I then I looked this up in the data as well that uh, so THC is lipophilic, meaning that it's fat loving, it can easily cross membranes. So he says that THC doesn't need help crossing right. there. So the same amount that would go through with or without myrcene, well, it's it's going to be the same. Okay, so. And then I could not find any data anywhere on terpenes opening. Actually, no, there, there is a terpene. I can't remember the name. It's used in pharmaceuticals that does help uh, increase blood brain barrier permeability, but it's only for very specific drugs when they're um, formulated together. Okay. Um, So, but I could not find anything about myrcene specifically. There was a, a great paper for people wanting to understand cannabis is, um, by Ethan Russo as well, which is um, taming THC, uh, and and it's a great paper. It's it's an overview, okay. And if you want to learn about cannabis and these different things, it's fantastic. But you got to be careful with words like may, might, and possibly. So in that paper, I believe it was that one, or it might have been uh, cannabis sativa, the plant of a thousand one compounds. One one of the two says that terpenes may increase the permeability of thc it was like may might or possibly or something like that it doesn't say that they did it was it was a, it was a hypothesis it wasn't science okay so so based off of the low myrcene amount in mango the fact that thc doesn't need help uh, crossing the blood-brain barrier and then in 2020 and 2021 there were two terpene studies that were done that looked at the CB1 receptor with THC and terpenes, and they found that there was no modulation whatsoever. The terpenes did not do anything to the affinity or the strength of the cannabinoids at the receptor. Okay. Now, terpenes do work on other receptors. They're part of uh, receptors, I guess they call uh, monoamine, so neurotransmitters and hormones. Okay. Um, for example, like linalool modulates GABA, which can, you know, affect depression and sleep and relaxation and stuff like that. So, um, terpenes do work on other things. They also, from what I understand, work with like some pain receptors and things like that, but they don't directly affect CB receptors. Uh, even beta caryophylline, which is one that people claim for the longest time that it is a CB2 receptor agonist. Well, think of a, do you ever use a key and you put it into the lock and it fits, but it doesn't turn. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what they found with uh, beta caryophylline. At least the last study I read is that yes, it does evidently bind to the receptor, but nothing happens. So, um, you know, the, the idea that terpenes influence CB or cannabinoids as a whole at the receptor point uh, has, has not necessarily been proven um, I believe that there was a study that was done on a terpene recently that did talk about how it changed one of the cannabinoids that they were looking at, but the amount of the terpene that was present was like absolutely astronomically high right. and was done based off of a cell study. It wasn't based off of a living, breathing human being. With and even from numbers of terpenes or percentages yep. of whatever the case might be. Yeah. 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 And there are studies that have shown that terpenes do provide effects. There's aromatherapy studies, which a lot of them are questionable, but then there's studies where they're injecting terpenes. And when you're injecting them, it's a completely different form again than if you were inhaling them or if you were 
um, um, uh, digesting them, but also I don't know to date any human uh, human study that looked at the effects of different terpenes at different doses and deliveries with cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. there, there's it's it's not pinpoint down to say we know exactly that with THC limonene does this or with THC myrcene does that. So would that um, so, also be then why like the black peppercorns? Because I've heard it's like the beta caryophylline that they say is the terpene that helps bring you back down if you're too high. But from what you're telling me, that uh, that's yeah, another myth. Yeah, so that's the claim. I've heard two different things with black peppercorn. One is uh, due to beta caryophylline and the other one is due to uh, pining. And so... So to, to wrap up on uh, mango, though, I had someone on Instagram say that it absolutely does get you higher. You need to drink three bottles of the naked juice mango flavor. Okay. And you'll get higher. Yeah, that's called a freaking sugar high, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That is a that has nothing to do with myrcene or or anything. That is just you're overloading yourself with with hundred plus grams of sugar. Like, of course you're gonna feel higher. Jeez. Mm -hmm. God, you probably even that's get like canker sores in your in your <laughs> mouth from all like the acidity right. and stuff. So, all right. So anyway, so yeah. So mango. There's hardly any myrcene. THC doesn't need help from myrcene to to penetrate the blood brain barrier. Uh, when you eat that mango, your stomach's going to destroy the little bit of ter terpenes that are in there as a whole. And um, yeah, that's the placebo effect for sure. So next up would be black peppercorns. People claim that if you get too high to take some black peppercorns and suck on them or chew on them, and that it will reduce your anxiety because there's beta caryophylline in peppercorns and beta caryophylline has been shown to be a CB2 agonist, which CB2 agonists have been shown to help with anxiety. Okay. So, first of all, how many peppercorns? That's a good question. Nobody what, talks about that. What, <laughs> what, type, what type of peppercorn? Right. How old does the peppercorn have to be? Because terpenes degrade and oxidize at room cool temperatures, room temperatures. I guarantee my black peppercorn that I've got over there in my little grinder is probably a year plus old in the sense of what's in it since it was harvested and dried. So how long do you need to hold them in your mouth? Do you chew to break up the essential oils or do you suck on them? Like, well, what's what's the recipe for success? Right, and no these are all good questions. No, nobody does. It's very true. So, so then let's look at uh, um, peppercorns. When you look at the chemical constituents, there there is beta caryophylline in it, but it's not a huge amount. It's not like at the top of the list. But this, forget all that. This is where it, it the 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 sense of it all just kind of goes down the drain. THC is a partial agonist to both CB1 and CB2 receptors. So if you're getting anxiety when too high, your CB2 receptor is already lit up, lit up. So how would the beta caryophylline come in there and activate more <laughs> when they're already activated? Okay. Mm -hmm. 
beta caryophylline in the study I was shown earlier, evidently it doesn't do what people say it does. And um, from there, beta caryophylline is not an antagonist to THC, meaning that it would, you know, kind of reduce the effects of THC at that point at the CB2 receptor. So that it just kind of throws it out the door. It doesn't make sense. Now, when you look at other terpenes that are present in some of these compounds like black peppercorn and someone brings up pinene, um, and one, one of the, one, there's, I won't say what, but there's a very huge cannabis related account and the guy is infectious with his personality. He's fantastic. But he was talking about this going through and he was talking about pinene and how pinene uh, is considered to be an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, which means that uh, it can aid in memory retention and different things like that. Well, it's like, I don't know what that has to do with anxiety. There's nothing to show that pinene reduces the effects of, of THC or anything of the sorts. And to be honest with you, anytime that I've had a high pinene flower, I've had more of a stimulating experience not mm -hmm. said it so i don't see anything calming from that but again now we're, now we're sucking on it it's in our mouth what's it doing you know so this um this whole idea of things that you put in your mouth will drastically change the effects of of thc or things you eat and smoke at the same time even with cbd cb's been said oh if you get too high take take it well the data has actually shown the opposite uh, mm -hmm. It actually can increase the the amount of THC that remains in your system because it minimizes the um, the uh, metabolism of of the THC. If you take it, there was a study done. They looked at a it was a meta analysis of so reviewing like a bunch of other studies, and what they found is that based on the data, when you it, the only way CBD will affect how THC operates is if it's taken before or at the same time and generally in higher doses if it's at the same time i guess a closer like a one-to-one -one has been shown to be effective that's sativex which is a, a super studied drug or you got to take really high doses of it which you got to take high doses of cbd anyway if it's lacking in thc um and that the people that it showed to have an effect on that included a placebo were people with a super low tolerance or women hmm. and or, but generally if you have a high tolerance to cannabis and you're getting high and you get super anxious, the CBD is not, not going to do anything if you take it afterwards. So these are the types of things that I just, I like to read about, you know, here, here's the thing. If you were to look at an isolated terpene study and they said that limonene helps with, with reducing stress. Great. Well, that's limonene isolated through an aromatherapy study in a very controlled setting where they were exposed to this limonene for a certain period of time at a certain, at a, at a certain um, amount in the air, threshold or whatever it is, and in a particular environment. So it's like just because that study shows that limonene did A doesn't mean that it'll do A when you're smoking it and lighting it on fire. Chances are it'll do 37. It's not even a, a number anymore, or a letter <laughs> right. anymore. It's a completely different form of measurement, you know? Um, so, so a lot of CBD studies, they show that CBD is great at these things. So people say, oh, well, if CBD is great at those things, if you're too high, then take this and it'll help. Uh, based on the data, no. Anecdotally, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who have said that it's helped them, but there's a lot of people who have said that it hasn't. I just, I did a podcast last week um, with, with, 
with two ladies and all three of us said we've never ever had CBD help us when we were too high. What about you? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And usually if I'm too high too. I don't even think about it anyway. <laughs> there is that I'm just, just trying to get through, but I haven't, I, yeah, I haven't found that it's been that helpful and I do use CBD as well, but I think it's also just, as you mentioned earlier, everybody's biology is different and mm-hmm. how terpenes are going to affect you and different cannabinoids is all going to be based on your individual biology. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that that to a point. Um, and also, if you're saying you're taking CBD regularly, that's probably mm-hmm. a good reason to say why you might not get too high because right. you already have the CBD in your system that's being there regularly and before the THC. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, you're you've been smoking for a while and you were consuming for a while, and you know your limits at this point. Yes, you know, yeah, so. Which helps. <laughs> you, you, you're not getting blasted all the time in a party yeah. scene, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. just real quick for anyone who, who's listening and gets too high, the best things in the world are distractions. Call a friend, call your mom, call your dad, uh, do something that is engaging, play cards with actual physical cards, play some solitaire. Uh, don't just sit back and listen to music or watch a movie where you're not involved. Do something where you are actively engaged so you're distracted by it. Um, a, some people might be able to kind of meditate through and listen to some music. I, I try it if it works great, but for a lot of time, you just you need something to pull your attention away from the rapid heartbeat and the fact that you're just stoned. Whatever you do, don't call someone who only wants to talk about themselves. You've <laughs> got to get someone that will will engage you into the conversation. Right. No, I love that advice because there are times when we all do overdo it a little bit. So it's a nice reminder yeah. that you can get through it. And like you said, distractions are great because then you're not focused on how your body's feeling. And that's what also usually makes people feel even more anxious when they're too high. So the distractions, great advice. Now you, yep. um, you're a chef and you do, you, cre- did you create the course at the Tricom Institute, the cooking with cannabis course? Yep. Yep. That was, you- uh, that was your. That's my baby. I, right. I wrote the whole thing. I filmed it with our videographer and uh, did a lot of the editing and uh, right. on the back, not the video editing, but got everything together and yeah, launched this. Uh, it was about a year and a half, almost two years in the making, yeah. and um, just a, a really very in-depth, advanced course on cooking with cannabis. It is not a cooking course. I'm not in this course to teach you how to flambe, saute, the difference between (laughs) roasting and braising or how to smoke a brisket. That's not the case. It's all about cannabis education involving food. Uh, And so there's a very technical perspective to it, but there's also like this philosophical and entertainment perspective that I take as well, um, where, you know, a cannabis chef can do different things to help guide people through the experiences that they're wanting them to have. Um, and in the course, I explain when there's data that I have to rely on, here's the data. It's all referenced throughout the student workbook. And then when I'm sharing my opinions on something, I'm saying, this is my opinion. This is the best, uh, the best that I can come up with based off of the available data, but it may change and that's okay. That's, right. that's one of the big things, you know, going into this, I encourage everyone that I end up getting to talk to is come into it with an open mind, because I'm definitely going to challenge things that you think are the norm. I'm going to explain in as much detail why, and then explain what you can do to make that matter or not. 
Right. And I have been working through the course myself. And I have to say, I do find it very comprehensive. Now you do go through all the like basics, like decarb and all that stuff. But I wouldn't say this is a course for beginner cannabis cooks by any means. This is definitely, I feel a little more comprehensive, a lot more comprehensive. And the science that you do go through that I, and the parts I've done so far have been really eye-opening. I've learned a lot actually so far. Now, of course, the first thing you go through is you talk about decarbing, which as we all know, is a pretty important Mm -hmm. first step when you're making edibles. Um, What do you feel is the most effective way to decarb for somebody at home who's cooking? Sure. So I'm going to separate what I feel and point to the experts, which would be the University of Mississippi. They did a study on the decarb kinetics. So it's like, the rate of decarboxylation at certain temperatures and times, and at what point at a certain temperature or time can you expect the most effective decarb outcome or efficient? And what we mean by efficient would be the least amount of loss of cannabinoids and the most amount of THC conversion, okay, or CBD or CBG, whatever it may be. So it's the least amount of loss, meaning like just terpenes, think of evaporation and oxidation and decomposition. So it's the least amount of loss with the most amount of conversion. Okay. And what they found in one of the studies that they did would be if you were in a lab in a vacuum, uh, under vacuum with this very particular type of oven situation. And I thought it was great, but I reached out to them and I said, listen, from a home cook perspective, what is the temperature and time to decarb? And they said 266 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes will decarb the majority of cannabinoids aside from THCAB, which is such a minor cannabinoid that doesn't even matter, but I'll just throw that out there. But they said, so, so the, the, the usual suspects just think CBD and THC, CBG, if you're getting your hands on some CBG hemp flower, just think THC for this. That's the one you need to decarb in order for it to be effective. So I did some experiments and what I found is the best environment for this and temperatures would be in a convection style oven, which means that there's a fan in there and there's airflow. So I actually use my air fryer and I set it on the bake setting. And it's one of those that has like the door that pulls down, looks like a little mini oven. It's not the type that has the, like the bucket that you slide mm-hmm. in, but it's, it's uh, downwards. And so 270 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes in the air fryer, but it has to be in a container that allows the flour to be exposed to the moving air. Okay. But if you're in convection and you just throw flour crumbled up on a sheet tray, it's going to blow everywhere. So what I found is I found these bulk tea leaf infusers on Amazon. And it's basically, it it, it looks like a little container, maybe a cup and a half worth of visually of size. And it has a mesh metal. So airflow can go through because it's meant to see tea. So the water can get through there. Uh, and it has a lid on it. So I decarb in one of those. And what's great is I'll preheat the the air fryer or your oven. And then as soon as it's ready, I, when I throw that in there, that airflow is immediately circulating all around the flour. And you don't need to grind it. Just break it up with your hands. That heat's penetrating through all those different 
parts of the 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 individual little bracts of flowers and it's it's reaching those trichomes and it is reaching the thc that or the cannabinoids as a whole that's within there i tried different things like putting someone recommend using a turkey bag another person said just put it in a bowl with foil uh some people you recommend using silicone and what i found is that the temperature internally is really what matters okay so your 30 minute decarb in a bowl covered in foil is not as effective as the open to the airflow. And a lot of people say, well, I cover it with the foil or I put it into this container because it protects the terpenes. Now, temperature is temperature. So if your internal temperature to decarb properly reaches 266 degrees or whatever it is inside your container covered in foil or in a silicone container, well, even if you start your 30 minute timer at that point, once internally it reaches temperature, that's fine, but you're still exposing those terpenes to the, el- the, the heat. heat. So, yeah. yep. And what I found is that with the same strain, hemp and marijuana each time, when I would decarb in these different, uh, different ways, different vessels, so to speak, they all smell the same at the end. Yeah. Yeah. That nice the- toasty smell. <laughs> the way they feel might vary a little bit. The moisture content, the one exposed to the direct air at first, right out of the container actually does fall apart a little bit easier than like, say one that's covered. But once the cover one sits out for a while and it releases the rest of its moisture, it dries, it's all crumbly and dries up anyway. Mm-hmm. And what I found is the majority of flour at the end of the day, when you're, when you decarb it, when it, even at lower temperatures, it ends up smelling like a, like a um, stale sugar cookie. It mm-hmm. just has this slight sweet smell, which is probably from the caramelization happening that's in the sugars of the plant. Um, and it's got a little bit of a nuttiness to it. But if you decarb flour and when you're done, smell the original flour it came from that's not decarb, they smell nothing alike. Yeah, completely. In different. all these scenarios, regardless of how I've had them covered or not, what types of containers. So, bulk tea leaf infuser. Just Google that on Amazon. You'll you'll find some. Uh, I actually have it linked in the cooking course too. Uh, it's in your workbook. Um, and and just break up your flour. Don't cram a bunch in there. Uh, you you don't you want the air to be able to move around easily. And so that's another reason I don't recommend grinding. You know, if you have little you know penny size chunks of flour and they're stacked on top of each other there's plenty of space so the air is definitely going to be able to get uh, able to move through there and the reason convection is important is because it minimizes the chance of having hot or cold spots in your oven because in a regular oven there's always hot spots there's always cold Mm -hmm. spots okay so with that fan moving you're keeping that airflow and it is consistent everywhere i've put probes into my air fryer at different places and moved them around and they're off by a degree. Whereas if I put them in my oven, it could be off by 10, 15, 20 degrees. Right, which is common. Um, I've heard that before too. So do you have a brand yep. of of air fryer that you like? Because you mentioned that it has like more of the oven door type. Yeah, of. so this is by Instapot. It's called oh, okay. their Vortex, Vortex Pro. And I it's great because you can one. like dehydrate. Yep. You can dehydrate. They have a couple different ones there. It just depends on what there's like anywhere from five to like nine different cook settings. You can, right. the one I have, you can roast, you can braise, I'm not sorry, roast, broil, toast, uh, bake, uh, dehydrate. There's a warm setting. I've made beef jerky in it. So, you know, um, 
And and I, I lived in a motorhome with my wife for a year and a half during COVID. And we got this because it fit on the counter, which was not a lot of space. But it was also great because we could just throw anything in there without having to worry about lighting up uh, the pilot for the normal gas right. range. Yeah. And there was hardly any storage space. So we ended up storing like our pots and pans <laughs> in the little oven. And we right. just use this and it, it's super energy efficient. And uh, yeah, it's great. So the same thing that I've cooked ribeyes and French fries in, I, I used to decarb my, my weed. Now, I, I don't work with a lot of flour on the decarb side or just infusion side as a whole uh, because of the fact that it is impossible to know your dose. With hemp infusions, no big deal because you can take a shit ton and you're, you're good to go. But mm-hmm. when it comes to cannabis flour, marijuana, high THC flour, uh, what it says on the lab test does not reflect the flour that you have in your possession. Because the lab test is based off of what was sent to the lab from the harvest, which I assure you is going to be the... And there the, can be variances uh, in some of those results too, you know, a couple of percentage points either oh, yeah. way too, right? So there's yep. that as well. You can have variances there. But, you know, the, 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 the bud at the top of the plant can be different from the middle or the bottom. So can the terpene mm-hmm. profiles to a point, but THC can range, let alone from plant to plant. You know, there might be a little place in the rack that doesn't get as much light or airflow compared to another. And that plant might not have the, uh, the same uh, cannabinoid profile. So, and, and even if you knew exactly what your cannabinoid profile is in the raw flower, when you decarb it, you don't know your decarb efficiency. Even if you follow what the University of Mississippi says, it can still vary. Uh, and it can vary based off of the influence of other compounds, the moisture level uh, that's the, the, that the flower has. And then you have your extraction efficiency, which can vary based on the olive oil, the, the ghee, the butter, the alcohol, whatever. And at the end of the day, it's absolutely impossible to know your dose without any type of lab test. So when it comes to making infusions, honestly, if you're making flower infusions and you're a cannabis chef, you need to get them lab tested. Absolutely got to do it because you'll never really be able to tell someone, oh, this is five milligrams. It could be 10. It could be 15. It could be mm-hmm. two. It could be one. You never know. Right. Um, yeah. and, and so if you're home and you're cooking and you're experimenting, that's up to you. You're not getting paid to serve the public or you're not responsible for that. And if you get your friends high and someone gets too high, well, you know, be a good distraction for them. Uh, so they don't get, you know, too much, but, um, but in the sense of, as from a cannabis chef's perspective, the most reliable would be working with a already decarboxylated concentrate product, like a distillate, uh, or an RSO even, um, or decarbing a concentrate, like a wax product or rosin or something like that. And basically what you do is you just follow the 100% efficiency uh, calculation of what the max amount that you could get. And chances are that's, that's going to be relatively reliable. You're still going to have some loss. You're still not going to have hundred percent decarb efficiency. Um, and a lab test is recommended, but you know, if I have distillate, that's 99% and I put X amount of milligrams into an infusion, it's already decarb. All I got to do is do a little bit of math and calculate the dose per based off of what I want the serving size to be. Mm-hmm. And it's probably going to be as accurate as, you know, a lab tested batch of gummies that a, that a brand th- throws together. If you're working with a 0.001 gram scale, then you can, you can figure all of this out. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's definitely the most effective. The, the thing about it is where I think some cannabis, cannabis chefs get like 
holier than thou is like if you aren't working with flour from scratch doing all of your own extraction and infusions that you're not a cannabis chef and to me it's like well let me see your backyard i want to see your olive trees how many cows <laughs> do you have where are you getting right. your butter from yeah. you know uh or like if you're going to take it to that le- level like that everything you work with has to be from the source and from scratch and you have to do it all. Like it just doesn't make any sense to be a cannabis chef. You got to understand cannabis. And I would much rather see someone take a little mini, little syringe and put a half of a milliliter of infused lab tested or created with a distillate MCT oil on top of a taco and say, this is two and a half milligrams. I would much rather see that than see someone that oh, I grew this all in my backyard. I dried and cured it. I don't, I don't know how much THC is in it, but I think it's 20% because that's what I read based off of the, the lunar alignment. And when I harvested, <laughs> you know, right. like, yeah. so, so to me, I don't care. And the other thing is most customers don't care how the infusion got into their food. They care about does the food taste good and what type of experience are they going to have? That's really what they care about. All the other stuff, the story, it's great. If you've got one, you're using, you grow your own, you got it lab tested and all this stuff, but most cannabis chefs can't. In a legal market, they can't. Oh, yeah. And not most yet. home, home cooks their... aren't doing that either. So there's there's that as exactly. well. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and most cannabis chefs aren't either. But what a lot of cannabis chefs are doing, like I, I did when I was actively doing dinners, is I partnered with a company, Potawi. looks like Pot D. Holy is how you would Yeah, like, I'm familiar with those guys. It, but it's Potawi. And uh, which is pot of oil. And uh, I partnered up. They had an amazing extra version olive oil, first cold press. It was lab tested. It was infused to one milligram per milliliter. And it fit my style of cooking because I use a lot of good healthy fats in what I'm doing. And I could dose something out easily. So I didn't have to worry about growing my own or anything like that. No one, I've never done a dinner where someone said, well, where, what part of this is infused and where did it come from? And did you grow? No one ever said that. Right. No one. I right. could tell people what was infused, you know, if at all, like in the sense of sometimes I literally would dose on top of like just a simple flavored oil, an herb oil of sorts, uh, a pepper oil, just because I wanted to make sure that my group of 10 or 20 people were all being dosed based off of their tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more important to me than, you know, just having this like robust, stinky flower infusion oil that permeates their pudding and all you taste is weed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nobody wants that. That's for sure. Now, as far as infusions go, so you talk about the decarb 270 at 30 minutes, ideally in a convection oven, if you have one. Um, yes. And I will link to the Instapot because I, I don't think they're that expensive either. Some convection ovens. Definitely no, they're like 100, 100 or 120 bucks, I think. Yeah. Right. Which will air fry and do all these other things too. So that's pretty great. Now, is there one infusion that you feel like every person should do? Like, is there because obviously you can infuse almost anything. What's the one sure. that made infusion that you'd like to have on hand? Infused olive oil or okay. avocado oil or MCT oil. So a, a neutral oil is better. Um, avocado or MCT are really my, my two go-tos. Uh, olive oil is, is good, but when you hit it with the heat, it can change the flavor. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas the MCT and the avocado is so neutral. Um, after you're done decarbing, you want to preheat your oil to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Add your flour, 
maintain that 212 degrees for 40 minutes. And that's it, 212 for 40 minutes, but it has to be preheated. So when the flour goes in, it's already at temperature. You're not waiting for that oil temperature to go up and which is just gonna be further degrading the, the infusion. Uh, and that was also based off of another another study uh, that was done. And um, th what's nice about MCT oil is there's not as many variances as something like um, olive oil. You know, there's different, to, there's there's like ex first cold press extra virgin olive oil, virgin olive oil, olive oil, um, and pomace oil. Uh, and then there's a, there's, all of bricks. There's like this other thing that they use to, I forget what, what they use it for like lanterns and stuff like that from back mm -hmm. in the day. Uh, but there's different qualities. And then just with different first cold press olive oils, how is it filtered? Is it filtered? What type of olive is it? When was it harvested? Like there's all, what, what are the, the polysaturated fat content and all these different things? Like right. they're all going to vary in the extraction. So MCT oil is really great because it's pretty consistent. Um, you can also buy specific types of MCTs. So you can get like uh, Bulletproof, their brain octane oil is specifically C8, which I think is capric acid, uh, which is a an MCT. It's just an isolated one, like buying mm -hmm. limonene instead of citrus, you know, uh, essential oil. Um, they also have like one that's a mix, which is capric and caprylic. And then there's one, uh, Lark is uh, the most common. It's the cheapest because it's the most abundant, but it's also the one that tends to cause people some GI issues. Uh, uh, if yes. anyone's ever heard of, if yes. anyone in the keto world has uh, <laughs> ever experienced disaster pants, that's because of your MCT coffee that's being right. made with uh, Lark acid. Um, but, you know, so regardless of the oil, let's just like, because I don't know the different extraction efficiencies of the different oils. There's too many. But if you were to do any type of oil, preheat it to 12, adjust your, your heating element, whether it's a hot plate or it's in the oven, to and maintain that for 40 minutes. And that's the most efficient extraction uh, for there. And then take your oil and turn it into something you'll use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, that's the key part. <laughs> Don't infuse something yep, you're not going to use because otherwise what's the point? It's a base. It's a base yeah. to making a chimichurri. It's a base to making uh, some salad dressing. It's a base to, um, you know, whatever. I, I, I mean, make some chili oil out of it, you know, put a, mm. put a bunch of red pepper flakes and simmer that super, super low. And with, but if actually, if you're going to do something like that, where heat is applied again, I recommend infusing the oil first. So make your infused chili oil with the MCT, strain it, and then add your infusion to it because you don't want to keep adding heat. I don't recommend terpene or uh, cannabinoid infused infusions as a whole. If they're going to hit heat, it should be super, super low um, because they can further degrade and, and, and minimize your dose. You just went through all that work. So why would you want to? hit anything with high heat, you know, even mm -hmm. baked goods. I know a lot of people love the idea of infused baked goods, but one homogenizing it properly throughout and knowing your dose is like so challenging. Um, and you're also going to degrade the product even more. Uh, so like if you're going to make cupcakes, great, we'll infuse your filling or your garnish, you know, make, make a homogenized uh, icing of sorts and each cupcake you're putting on a scale and you're, tearing and then you're putting your measured by weight dose on there which is also formulated to the amount of milligrams because you can't just like fill 
fill a cupcake and say, oh, there's 10 milligrams. No, <laughs> no one's got that much of a, a perfect right. squeeze. No, you got to do things by by milliliters or milligrams. I always say like, get used to working with the metric system uh, so that you can accurately dose things. You know, you, you eventually get to the point where it's like, okay, well, a teaspoon is like five milliliters. A tablespoon is roughly 15 is four. It's like 14.89. But at that point, that 14.89, I believe it is versus 15. It's such a, a, a yeah. small amount that like you could go to one company and buy, like I have some all clad measuring spoons that could be a lot more accurate than, you know, the ones for 75 cents at Walmart that are plastic. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's measurement and uncertainty in a lot of the things that we use. Um, but Working with milliliters and milligrams is definitely the best way to go about it. So yeah, to answer your question briefly at the end of the year, yeah, you have an infused oil and a, I love my saturated fats. I love tallow. I love butter and ghee and stuff like that, but they're hard to work with because they're not liquid at room temperature. Mm-hmm. So I also recommend uh, storing your infusions in the refrigerator. And if you have an infused olive oil or something like that, or MCT oil, Olive oil will thicken up. MCT oil won't at all. It'll stay liquid in, in the refrigerator. Uh, olive oil, you let it sit out for like 30 minutes, give it a shake, and you can you know, ex- extract with a syringe or something like that. But yeah, an oil is definitely the, the, the best way to go. But believe me, I like making some infused tallow and stuff like that uh, or ghee, but I generally will put them in a scenario where um, I can quickly melt them um, or let them sit at room temperature and, and loosen up a bit so that I can get a, a, a liquid dose out of it. Right. And a lot of the times those types of infusions are good too. When you have something specific in mind that you want to use it for, whereas like an avocado oil, having that on hand, you know, you can use it for so many different things. And I think I'm going to have to try this chili oil as well. Cause that sounds delicious. And I will put the oh, chili so in first. Yeah. yeah. And then infuse it afterwards. I really like that. As always, you can find links in the show notes along with where to find Chef Brandon Allen online. And I'll be updating my own recipes for decarboxylation and infusions on the website to reflect this scientific information that he shared with us during this conversation. Always be learning, right? I hope that you can try some of his advice right away and that that leads to some tasty, effective edibles. Stay tuned for next week, part two of this conversation. And as always, my friends, stay high.